0: is people have a chance to go and get away and be refreshed from the heat that's upon us. And another blessing that I would say is when you come back, there are new people. And so that's always a joy. And this morning I met several Love You, and it was a pleasure to have met you. And I would encourage you, especially with the church being right around half full with many still to come back in the next few weeks, that you would just spend a few minutes and hang out in the back It was really interesting how on most Fridays, it's like the locusts come by and all the cookies are gone, or biscuits, I guess, I'm American, Um, and they're gone within like three minutes. And then last week, there was like two trays left. It was like, whoa, where are all the kids? Well, they're visiting their home countries, and so we'll actually have biscuits today for you, and you can hang out and get some tea or coffee. And with it being about half the size right now, it's a bit less intimidating and there's a bit more room back there, so you can meet some people. And so I would encourage you to not rush out. You can go get lunch. I promise the restaurants won't close, but hang for a few minutes and meet some people, especially if you're visiting us the last few weeks. Um, One thing that does help us as we follow up with those of you that are new is this information sheet that you found in your bulletin. And so if it's not too much to ask, it'd be a huge help for us to get to know you better You can fill it out and just give it to me. I'll be in the back kind of hanging out afterwards and that we can call you, follow up with you, and have information. Um, As we jump in today in this new teaching series, I want you to take just a second and just in your mind just picture something. I want you to picture a bride on her wedding day. Dressed up, her hair, her makeup, she's flawless. Maybe if you're married, you can think back to when you saw your bride. Or if you're a lady, you remember your wedding day. Or if you're a groom, you're not quite as important on your wedding day. I mean, you have to show up. But it's really her day, the way I perceive it. But nonetheless, you should definitely be there. But think about this bride and this groom on their wedding day, and, and you can almost sense their joy, can't you? And the anticipation and, and the excitement of, of a beginning, of launching their lives together. But sadly, I also want you to picture what happens to far too many couples a few years later, and the excitement has given way to disappointments, and the anticipation has given way to dissatisfaction, and the, and the, the joy, unfortunately, is now frustration. There are far too many couples that neglect their relationship that don't keep those fires burning in their marriage and within a few short years all of a sudden the excitement the euphoria of the wedding day is completely gone and what's left is disappointment and if we're honest with ourselves it's not just in marriage it's hardly only those of us that have said I do years ago every one of us in this room and some level in some capacity in your experience you have had a friendship that you initiated with someone that you had high hopes for, that you really thought, now this friendship is going to be awesome, and you're so excited about this new friendship, but then life happens, situations that you didn't expect come into being, and all of a sudden what's left of that friendship is just disappointment and pain, and the friendship that once was no longer is We've all experienced disappointments and friendships. We've all felt that sting of being hurt. And if we are honest with ourselves, it's not just others that hurt us. If we're honest and we do inventory of our relationships, there have been times when we are the offenders, when we are the ones that disappoint our friends. We're the ones that let down our wife or our husband. We're the ones that disappoint other people. It really does indeed go both ways. There is no relationship that can ever fully deliver what you dreamt it could. Hear me. There is no human relationship that can ever fully deliver what you dreamt it could. Well, why? Well, why why do you say that? Well, first of all, our experience proves it. But beyond that, and more importantly, God's word reveals to us that we live in a world that has fallen, In a world where the prince, the power of the air, Satan himself is currently the prince. He is the ruler, but not for long. We know that Christ will return. But on this side of Christ's return, we live in a world that has death and decay and disappointment. It is part of our human experience because of the fall. And we either are the ones letting down or are let down by our relationships. And yet, with all of this doom and gloom having been said, the reality is that every one of us also experiences sheer joy in our relationships. If you're married, I'm sure, of course, there's challenges. But you also experience great joy. Like this week, I mentioned this last week, I'm a a baby. I had one week with no wife or children. And I'm just a mess, man. It's terrible. I can't hardly sleep at night. I don't want to eat. It's like, what's wrong with me? Well, I miss my best friend. I I miss talking to her. I miss my children. And so we all experience great joy from relationships. Not just joy, but encouragement. Think back to a time when you were going through some really dark times or or went through some really deep waters, and there was someone there that held you up, and someone was there to encourage you and pray for you and, and to just help you through the hard times. We've all been there. We've all experienced spiritual growth and encouragement through our relationships. Not one of us would be who we are if it weren't for other people who've invested in us. We are who we are by God's grace and God uses other people to encourage us. And yes, even the times to lovingly correct us, but we become who we are through relationships. And so there is such joy that comes from having relationships. And yet, they don't always deliver. And so it seems to me, it's kind of a fascinating thing, thinking about our relationships. Because there are so many times that we wish we could live alone. Like, there are some moments, guys, I know it's not just me, all of us, or you ladies too, where you wish, man, I wish I was alone. And then there are other times when you're so glad that you're not alone. That's just our human experience. You see, some of our greatest joys in my my life, when I think of the greatest height of elation of sheer joy in my life, it's always been because of other people. Always. Every single time they should experience great joy, I guarantee you there was a relationship That was a part of that. So we experience our greatest joys in relationship, and yet we experience our most painful hurts in relationships, both. Heights and the lows are a result of our relationships. See, but there's good news that God has not left us alone to try to figure out our relationships. It's not as though God's abandoned us and left us to figure out how to somehow manufacture good times and avoid the bad times. It doesn't work that way. God has spoken very clearly about relationship, and he has given us the joy of knowing him and of knowing other people. God is with us. He is with us and in our relationships, and due to Christ and his gospel of salvation, due to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We can. We truly can have meaningful and satisfying and reconciled relationships. We can. I'm not saying it's going to always be perfect. I understand that. But we can have restored meaningful relationships. Today we begin a new series called Together. This series called Together is looking at the gospel and our relationships. So over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be in that one chapter today and three more weeks. And we're going to learn over these four weeks in Ephesians 4 how to have, but not just have, but to maintain. That's the key for us. Not to just to begin, but to maintain healthy and gospel-centered relationships. The book of Ephesians, if you're turning there, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, an ancient Greek city, later became a city in the Roman Empire in modern-day Turkey. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus in the early 60s A.D., towards the end of his life when he was imprisoned in Rome. Now, this is an amazing book. It's only six chapters. Now, we'll look at only one for this series, but... In this six-chapter book, there's part one and part two in this six-chapter book. Chapters one, two, and three, first half of the book, there are exactly zero commands. There is nothing that God tells you to do in Ephesians one, two, and three. There are no imperatives, not one. What you find in Ephesians one, two, and three is the gospel. It describes the absolute beauty of our Savior who has come to display that wisdom and glory and beauty. He has come to display his glory in redemption. And he does it through Christ crucified. It describes how God sent Jesus to save rebels like you and me who we would rebel against a loving and holy God and we would impose ourselves against God and we all do it. And Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 describes that we're all selfish and we're all sinners and we're all broken and we've all violated God's laws and we have offended our God personally and we deserve His judgment. We have earned an eternity separated from God's love in a place called hell. And that is the message of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, that because of our sin. We are separated from God. This is our problem, and it's because of this separation that our sin has caused, is that's why we're fearful. And many of you, I guarantee you, if you're honest, when you think about God, even here on a Friday morning, sometimes there's some trepidation, there's some fear, there's some anxiety. And the reason why sometimes we fear God is because of our sin. And the reason why sometimes people are resentful Or angry at God is because of our sin. And it's our sin. That's that's the reason why we experience guilt and shame. But there's good news. The gospel, the word gospel means good news. There is good news that God loves you. Hear me. The good news is that God loves you just as you are. With your problems, with your mistakes, with your past, with those secret things that you know, that you do, that no one else knows, that cause you to be so ashamed. God knows and he loves you. And he sent his son to come and to liberate you from that sin and to offer you forgiveness, to offer you hope, In an eternity where you can truly enjoy him. He has come to redeem you, to liberate you from your sin. And why? It says in Ephesians 1, for the praise of his glory. He is saving human beings, boys and girls, and men and women, for the praise of his glory so that his name will be made big and glorified on the earth. God's purpose is to transform people's lives so that we can then reflect his Glory so that he can be revealed to his creation. That is what God is doing in the world. Jesus died on the cross as your substitute. He paid the penalty for your sins, but he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected powerfully and gloriously on the first Easter, and he offers you hope, forgiveness, and joy. You see, Jesus came to reconcile you back to God the Father, to bring you close to him, to enjoy him to have unity with God. That is the message of Ephesians is one of unity. So the first half of the book describes the gospel and how Jesus came and died in your place and now you can know God and experience the joy of having unity with him. Rather than turn to the things of this world that we would do, that we would turn to and give our hearts to that leave us feeling empty and feeling guilty And feeling ashamed, instead, God has come to fill you with his spirit so that you can experience the joy of knowing your creator who loves you as you are, but loves you too much to leave you how you are. And so he has come to transform us by the power of his spirit. So you see, he provides unity with him he allows us to be reconciled, to be close to him, to remove our sin that he put on his son who defeated it on the cross. The gospel brings us unity with God. It brings us close to God where we no longer have to fear him. But the gospel also brings us unity with other people. And that is the message of the second half of the book of Ephesians. We have unity with Others. And so the theme, the overall theme, of the book of Ephesians is that the gospel creates unity. So that's what the book is about, is how the gospel of Jesus creates unity with God and with others. So let's begin by reading the first six verses, which is today's text in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. There was one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This remarkable glorious text calls you and me to unity now sometimes that's easy to do when the people that you're talking to or that you're having to deal with when they completely agree with you when every thought that you have they're like yes i agree you're right 100 percent." then unity is easy right When everyone that you're talking to agrees with you, likes the same things, looks like you, sounds like you, and in every capacity agrees with you, well, that's easy to maintain unity. But on the other hand, whenever the other people around you don't always agree with you, think differently from you, have other thoughts that you don't necessarily agree with or like, now we're talking about something quite different. And maintaining unity becomes much more work not easy to do it's kind of like that story of two men that got into a really bad disagreement and these two men that had been friends just could not get along they could they were at an impasse they were really struggling to resolve their differences and so they decided to talk to a mutual friend this friend of theirs they thought to be a very wise person so i said okay well let's Let's go talk to him and see if he can't help us figure out our disagreement. And so, this first man went to the home of this mutual friend that was the, the wise friend, and he shared his side of the story. And as this wise gentleman heard his story, he said, No, you, my friend, are absolutely right. Your other friend is wrong. So, then the second man came in to speak to the mutual friend who was considered to be very wise. And he told them now his side of the story and his perspective on the disagreement. And the wise gentleman said, no, nope, you're absolutely right. Your friend is the one that's in the wrong. Well, at this point, the wife overheard this supposed wise gentleman and said, what are you doing? You just had these two guys come in, give you their side of the story, and completely opposite sides of this disagreement And you told both of them that they're both absolutely right. That's not even possible. How could they both be absolutely right? So the wise gentleman looks at his wife and he says, you're absolutely right. Now that's not unity, nor is that wise for the record. It takes work to truly work through disagreements. To truly resolve differences takes effort and energy and being intentional. We can't just say, oh, people want to hear, and then hope it goes away. It won't go away. The disagreements don't go away. It takes effort. And there are times when it does take effort, when it's difficult, that we have a choice to make. A decision comes before us, and we have to ask ourselves, is Is it worth it? We have to ask, is it it worth the effort? Is it worth the pain of of swallowing my pride, asking for forgiveness, of going forth and maintaining this unity? Sometimes it's difficult, and we wonder, is it worth the trouble? Is it worth the effort? Is it worth the pain or the disagreement? Is Is it worth it? Well, I'm here on the authority of God's word, not my own to tell you, yes, absolutely, it is worth it. It is worth the effort. It is worth the pain. It is worth it. Relationships are absolutely worth it, no matter how messy or how challenging it is. Worth it. And so the main idea from this text that we just looked at, that we'll look at more deeply now for the next few minutes, in Ephesians 4, the main idea, is that as God's people, okay, we as God's people are called to reflect his unity. So the main idea from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is as God's people, we must maintain that we must reflect God's unity because God is united, and so we must reflect that unity. That's what we are called to do. But how do we do that? How do we maintain unity even when it's hard or how do we how do we fight against that bitterness or that desire to just say forget it and just write off that person and not talk to them or not call them or not visit them anymore or stop skyping with them or just say forget it how do how do we fight against that desire to just write off relationships what do we do when there's bitterness and frustration that's deep in our soul how do we fight against that and do the work of maintaining unity, because we are called to reflect God's unity. That is the main idea. Well, there are two truths. There are two truths we'll look at this morning that are foundational. This is the foundation that we're going to build upon. So for the next few weeks, as we look at Ephesians 4 and learn many, many more principles on, on communication and conflict resolution and forgiveness, and the list goes on of things that we'll learn from God's Word in this chapter about relationships, how to have healthy, gospel-centered relationships, we must first have a foundation. And that's what we're looking at this morning. There are two truths that we must know to have gospel-centered relationships. So our unity must be based upon two things. Number one, our unity must be based upon the gospel. What a surprise that I would say that. But it is. So our unity, number one, is based, founded upon the gospel message itself. The gospel is the foundation. You have to understand the gospel. You have to apply it. You have to live it out. And when we do that, our relationships will absolutely be impacted. If we don't know, don't live, don't care, don't breathe the gospel, I can assure you, I can guarantee you, take it to the bank, you're going to suffer in your relationships. You will. You will. And as we talk throughout this next few weeks and as we learn about relationships that are gospel-centered, I'm praying that God's Spirit will reveal to you how maybe you've forgotten or maybe you're not applying the gospel, and that is the root reason why we have relationships that suffer or that are shallow or that aren't reconciled. Let's reread verse 1 and see this. Ephesians 4.1. He says, I therefore, this is Paul, a prisoner. Remember, he was in Roman prison. So I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to what? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. So he says that we're to walk, to live our lives, to walk, to live in a way, in a manner that is worthy of our calling in which God has called us to remember right here in chapter 4 he says therefore when you see therefore it's there for a reason and so don't ignore the word therefore it's a transition he's been describing the gospel of how we've been saved by faith by Christ alone by his grace alone through our faith alone. And so now, therefore, in light of the gospel, in light of your salvation, because of Christ's work on the cross, because you're the redeemed, you're adopted, because of who you are in Christ, therefore, now do this. Therefore, what? Live your life in a way that is worthy of the calling of being saved. You see, you did not all by yourself find Jesus. You didn't. You, you did not, on your own, go look for Jesus. It says that he called you. Your redemption is a calling from God. And this theme is throughout the book. We don't have time to look at all of it, but I'll point to two verses in the opening paragraph of Ephesians chapter 1, where he's beginning to describe the gospel and how we're saved. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that he, this is God, is that he chose us in him, even before the world began, it says that he chose us. In the very next verse, verse 5 in Ephesians 1 says, And God predestined us for adoption, he predestined, he chose you, he, he chose you, he adopted you according to his will. And in the very first verse, in Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, he says that he is an apostle by the will of God. God chose him. And this theme is developed. We don't have time to get into all the implications of this. But this is important. Left to yourself, left to myself, left to my selfish, sinful desires and my own selfish ambitions, I would have never on my own turned to God. I wouldn't have. Because I was blind. I couldn't see that I was a sinner. I didn't see the beauty of God. God took the initiative. It says that He chose me. He says that He called. He said, Matthew, hey, listen to me. He called me. And He showed me that I'm a sinner. Well, how do I know that? It says in the same chapter, Ephesians 1, verse 18, it says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. See, this is a prayer. The Apostle Paul is praying. For the people who are reading this originally, he's now, by extension, for you and me. He says, what? To have your eyes enlightened, have your eyes opened, that you may know what is the hope to which God has called you. And so Paul is praying for people to have their eyes opened so that they will hear God's call upon them to come and repent. And believe in Jesus and experience the joy of forgiveness and salvation. He called you by name. He loves you. So he called you. And on that day, when your eyes were opened, you realize, oh my God, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. Forgive me, Jesus. Come into my life and change me. And on that day, you, out of your own free will, because we cannot remove humans being moral agents that have free will, and we are accountable. And so we have to maintain this divine intention that God is sovereign, and he chose you, he called you, and yet you had to respond to that call. You had to, out of your own choice, repent and believe in Jesus. And so we must maintain that we have our own free will to repent and believe, but it is God who is gracious and good to you and opened your eyes, and then you could see what was going on, and you could repent out of your own free will. And so we must maintain this divine intention. Now, this, this is some deeper waters for some of us, and we're not getting into a deep exposition of Ephesians 1. That would be a whole series in itself. Here's a point that we must believe and grapple with in our hearts is that you have been saved by God's grace. God has been good to you. We don't deserve it, but he's been gracious to us. He's called us. See, let me explain to you how this truth of God choosing and God calling you and you responding to his grace let me explain to you how that really works in our relationships okay? and why this impacts how we relate to our wives and children coworkers, co-workers and so forth. You see, we tend to use our human wisdom, you and I, we tend to use our logic and our human wisdom when we approach our relationships. And so what we tend to want, because we're selfish, is we tend to want to control our relationships. We tend to want to manipulate our husbands or our wives because we want to get what we want. We want what what it is that we think is best for us using our own logic and human wisdom. And so we approach other people as a means, as a way to get what we want. And so husbands approach their wives and want to control her and control the situation so that they get what they want. And wives do it too. We want to control and manipulate, which is why so many guys don't mind the summer when the wives are home with the kids, because for once they're like, psh, I get a break. I I don't have to listen to her anymore for like 10 weeks. And they look forward to the summer. To me, that's, that's sad, because that's not how it should be. We ought not approach our relationships with what can I get out of it. But so many of us, on some level, all of us tend to do that because we want to please ourselves and use people to get that. And so here's the thing. Here's what you and I tend to want to do is we want to change our relationships without needing to change ourselves. We want to change our wife, or want to change our husband, or change the boss, or change whoever. We want to change circumstances, change people, change relationships. But rarely do we stop, look in the mirror, and ask, how must I change? You see, the whole point of the gospel, with God sending Jesus to save you, the whole point of that is that our hearts need to be transplanted. We need a new heart. We can't save ourselves. We're broken. We needed God to take the initiative, send Jesus, and open our eyes. And so he's been good to us, and he's transformed us. When someone repents and believes, their heart is radically transformed. And when when we are submitting to God, you know what happens to us? We begin to walk in the manner worthy of our calling. We begin to live in such a way that is consistent with who we are, redeemed, who have the Spirit of God. He does that for us. And so the gospel changes us. And we'll see in a few minutes and how we're going to think about this a little bit more, more deeply in a second on how contemplating on this gospel helps us in our relationships. But let's, let's work through this passage a little bit more closely, verses 2 and 3. And it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so there's a direct correlation here. He says, when you, when you have come to Christ and you transformed, you're walking in a manner worthy of your calling, what does it do to your relationships? It impacts all of our relationships. What happens to us? We have humility and we have gentleness. And we bear with one another with love, and we maintain unity. So the gospel has a direct impact on how we relate to other people. Now, isn't that what you want in your marriage? Gentleness and humility and bearing with one another and unity? Guys, isn't that what you want from your marriage, ladies? Of course it is. Don't you want that with your coworkers or your children? Of course. We, we want this with our, our church, don't we? I mean, in our faith family, don't we want those qualities to describe who we are, that we maintain the unity of the Spirit? But notice what Paul says. He doesn't say that we create unity. What is the word that he uses? That we do what? Maintain unity in the body of the Spirit, and so we are called to maintain, which means we can't create it. Unity is something that God gives that we have to then maintain. You can't fake it. You can't manufacture it. You see, unity comes in the faith family when each one of us individually is gripped and transformed by the gospel. Each one of us individually is pursuing Christ. Each one of us is united with Christ we have fellowship with Jesus because every day we're praying and every day we're meditating on God's word and we're growing spiritually. We're killing the old self. We're walking in the spirit. Each one of us, every single day, is pursuing intimacy with Jesus. And then because of that, our hearts are transformed and we love him more and we hate our sin more and we're all doing this individually and then we come together and guess what happens? Guess what's the natural result of that? Unity. I'm naturally more patient with you. And you're more patient with me. But we can't fake it. Our fellowship with each other is made possible because we share the fact we have fellowship with God. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, there it is again, you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. I mean, how many times can Paul remind us that we've been called to this, that he first chose us, he first loved us, and now we respond, and we respond with love back to him. He says that we're individual people, but together we're the spiritual body of Christ. We share the same one Holy Spirit. We share the same one hope in Jesus. And when someone repents and believes in the gospel, when when someone turns to Christ, that Person is instantly loved. This is critical for our faith family moving forward, as God's going to bring us more people, as God's going to give us the privilege of shepherding and being steward over more souls and more families. People that come and repent and believe in the gospel. When someone comes and they join our faith family, when they receive Jesus as their Savior, they at that point they are adopted. They belong to God's family. We are now siblings. We are now in the same family, and we share God as Father. When someone believes in Jesus, they ought to be instantly loved. They belong. They belong to our faith family. We are to love them because God has first loved us. So how does remembering this gospel help you to maintain your relationships in a healthy, gospel-centered way. Well, let me give you this thought, that the gospel itself shows you that God loves you and accepts you. So the gospel shows you that God loves you, and he has accepted you for who you are. So the more you understand God's love for you, the more you understand that God first loved you and now you love him, it will change everything. You see, you must love God more in order to love others more. Here's how this works. When I relate to you, and you're different from me, you sound different, different home country, the personality, ideas, we're different people. But when I relate to you, and I'm secure in knowing that I'm God's child, he chose me, he adopted me, he loves me, And when I'm secured knowing who I am and knowing that God loves me, you know what happens? It gives me the courage and it gives me the hope to love you, even when it's hard. And it gives you the same courage and hope. Knowing that God loves me gives me the hope and the courage to get my hands dirty. Because when you do it with people, your hands get dirty but you'll have the courage to get your hands dirty with other people. Why? Well, we're all sinners, and we're living together. But we have to believe and remember that the gospel shows that God loves you. And so you can, and we ought to go forth and do the hard work of loving each other, even when it's hard. God accepts you. You must now go and accept others. God accepts you as you are. You go do the same with others. The gospel also shows that God has been gracious to you. You and I do not deserve God's grace, and there are people in your life that don't deserve your grace either. If we're honest, every one of us have people, at times we share a last name that it's funny, but it's difficult and painful, and sometimes it's really not so funny. And we think to ourselves, they don't deserve it. No, and the truth is, you're right. They don't deserve your grace, but you don't deserve God's grace either. And so when you are gripped by the gospel, understand how much you've been forgiven and how much grace God has shown you. It gives you the courage and it gives you the motivation and the desire and a transformed heart to go show that other person grace who likely does not deserve it. But you're willing to do so because of the grace that God has shown you in the gospel. Understanding what God has done for us on the cross changes our relationships. But there's a second truth, and you're thinking, oh, no, we're never going to have lunch. He's going long. He missed five weeks. Now he's going to preach five times as long. I promise I won't. The second foundational truth is profound, but much briefer will be done here on time. The first foundational truth for our relationships is it's based on the gospel itself. The second truth of the foundation is that our unity is based on the trinity. Our unity is based on the trinity. Let's let's read briefly. We've read it once already, but I want to read to you again verse 4. It says that there is what? There is one body and one spirit. So in chapter 4 verse 4 is referring to we are united because we all share the Holy Spirit. And then if you look in verse 5, it says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord is referring to Jesus who is the Lord, who is the head of the church. He describes baptism because baptism is very important. Baptism is the external demonstration of what's happened internally. You've been baptized into the family of God, the people of God, and your water baptism shows the world externally so they can see what's happening to you on the inside spiritually because of Jesus, because of the Lord, and so we have the Spirit unites us in verse four, the Lord Jesus and our one faith in Him, so the Lord Jesus in verse five, and then in verse six, what does it say? We have one God and Father of all. We all share this one Father, and so you see the Spirit, you see the Son, and you see the Father. All three are described right here. You see the Trinity as a foundation for our unity. You see, the doctrine of of the Trinity is crucial. It's so important for us to understand the biblical community. It's all based upon the character of God as a triune God. And the reason why is that the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this incredible triune godhead shows us the environment in which each one of us should image or reflect god let me to explain kind of how this works father son and holy spirit love each other they don't have strife they always get along they have specific roles though within their relationship and they're all perfectly secure and they all esteem each other within their specific role in the relationship. The son submits himself to the father. The spirit submits to the son and to the father. And so what you see is there's no fighting for position in the Trinity. They're all equal. But even though they're equal, they have different roles and a different part to play in redemption. Only in Abu Dhabi, right, is there a cat that runs through the worship gathering and distracts everyone. That, now that is a first. Swatting flies and chasing cats out of the service. But, but what you see in, in the Trinity is critical for us to understand. Because the Son embraced Death, to please the Father. The Spirit points to the Son. What you see here is mutual submission. Within the various roles within the Trinity, there is esteem of each other. And there is a deference to each other. And yet, there is love and acceptance and unity. The only true, perfect community that exists is the Trinity. And we who bear God's image have the privilege of reflecting God, of imaging Him. As He is community, we must have community. We must maintain unity. So God is harmonious, and we must be harmonious as a community. This changes everything in our faith. I mean, this is critical. We must image God with our lives, image the Trinity. And so how does this impact your relationships on day-to-day life? Well, first of all, you have to remember every day when you deal with people that are even difficult, remember that they bear God's image just like you do. Human beings are God's handiwork. Do you think it's right for us to come to church on a Friday morning and praise God and then throughout the week Curse God's handiwork. We do it all the time, don't we? We praise God with the same two lips on a Friday morning, and we use those same tulips to curse His image, other human beings. We curse His handiwork. God doesn't appreciate that. That's not going to help you and Jesus be closer, I can guarantee you. We must remember that we're all image bearers and that person that is just difficult also bears God's image and God loves him or her as much as he loves you because that person also reflects him as an image bearer. So we have to remember image is important. The second one here, the second thought on this is consider yourself Or consider, rather, others better than yourself. Consider others better than yourself. Jesus did not impose himself, saying, Father, no way. I'm not going to do the thing called incarnation and and become a human and and then live on the earth and then die on the cross. Forget it, man. I'm not doing that. Send the Spirit. Send him instead. I I don't want to go do that. I'll I'll be the one that that regenerates. I'll be the one that grows them to to, to maturity. Have the Spirit become a human. I, I don't want to, Father. You hear that from Jesus? No. He submits to the Father. And he says, I'll do it. To display our glory, to submit myself to you, to accomplish redemption. I, the eternal Word of God, will become a human. And I will suffer and die for them. And the spirit gets to do his role. They're all accomplishing their unique roles and aren't imposing themselves and complaining. You see perfect beauty and harmony and community in the Trinity. Consider others better than yourself. Consider the needs of others as more important than your own. As God's people, we are called to reflect is unity so our unity is based on these two things who God is and what God is doing who God is as a triune as a Trinity and what he is doing in redemption th- through the gospel so who God is and what he is doing is the foundation the basis for our unity but it's hard work loving me and me loving you is sometimes gonna be hard work, and we're gonna get crossways and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks on the specifics on how we work through then, what this looks like. But for today, as we close, as we lay this foundation for unity, this call to unity, I want to ask you two questions, and then we'll close. First question is, is there a relationship in your life that lacks unity? Do you have someone in your family, coworker, neighbor, friend, fellow church member, someone in your small group? I don't know. Is there someone in your life, a relationship that you know lacks unity? I would pray that you would ask God to change you, not to change that other person. Do everything you can to maintain unity. I understand that there are times when you do everything in your power, and the other person refuses. Well, that's not your fault. Before God, you have a clear conscience. If you've done everything in your power, you have sought, you have gone to that person, you've asked for forgiveness, you're trying to work it out, you're going with spirit of restoration of humility and gentleness like we read earlier. If you're, if you're going with the right spirit and the person rejects you, then that's not on you. God understands you, you have to have both people here to have a relationship. But have you done your part, you have a clearer conscience before you're God, that you've done everything that you can do to maintain unity with that individual. If you do, then then you're good. But if you haven't, then it's going to affect your walk with Christ. You're not reflecting him. You're not imaging the Trinity. You're not imaging the gospel. Will you go to that person this week and ask for forgiveness and do the hard work of reconciling that relationship as much as within your power the next question as we close is, how is your relationship with God? Do you have one? Have you ever truly come to that point where you realize what Christ did for you on the cross? He died for you, and you're now called to respond. I'll ask it to you this way. Do you sense God calling you? Even this morning, as we read about how salvation is a calling, are you sensing your heart being pulled, and God calling you to himself. And maybe you're fighting it because you're scared. There's no reason to be afraid. Your Father in heaven loves you, and he accepts you, and he wants you to know him. So maybe he's calling you even this morning. And I would ask you to repent and believe in what Christ has done for you, and you'll experience joy, like I can't even explain to you, of knowing your Father. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you. You are so good to us. We don't deserve you, and yet you have blessed us, redeemed us, and saved us, and we can have unity with you and with other people. Right now, I pray for those in this room that are grappling with the truth of their sin and the beauty of knowing you as their savior. I pray that you would give them the courage to just come talk to me and allow me to help them as they grow. I pray, Father, that you help us to be a faith family, that we'd be a church that is truly united, that would maintain our unity, so that we can properly image you and your gospel. I thank you for our church. I pray that you would continue to bless her, for we need you. We can't accomplish anything on our own, but with you, Father, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Thank you, Father, for hearing us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.